So Philippians chapter 1, and we're, we're really just going to focus on uh, four verses tonight, believe it or not. Um, verses 27 through 30 is where we're going to focus. Um, so let's read that together. Uh, this is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them that of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter. Uh, Father, we thank you that you um, have given us your word and you have done that, God, because you want to make yourself known to us. God, you don't uh, want us to wonder uh, what you are like, but instead you have chosen to reveal yourself through uh, the Bible, Lord, to reveal uh, your heart, to reveal your love, and to reveal uh, what you are truly like. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to appreciate this passage and to appreciate all of the scripture, Lord, because in it, you show us who you are. And so I pray that you would help us to understand now and that you would make this time uh, fruitful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, uh, if you can, I would like you all to imagine a three- or four-year-old Jack Fuller. And uh, a three- or four-year-old Jack Fuller and uh, imagine a conversation between Jack and his mom. It happens in the kitchen, okay? And, and uh, Mrs. Fuller is, is in the kitchen. She's making dinner. She's just finished boiling some water on the stove, okay? And so she moves the pot off to the side, and uh, curious little Jack Fuller looks up at the burner, and he's like, <laughs> I'm going to touch it. And, and mom, and, and, and his mom comes to him and says, now, Jack, don't touch the burner. It's very hot. If you touch it, you will burn your hand. And imagine, imagine Jack Fuller in the moment. He says, he says, okay, okay. And then mom goes away. A couple minutes later, I'm going to touch the burner. And so he goes over, touches the burner. And what happens? He burns his hand, right? Jack, is that a true story? Semi-true story? Four times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not making it up. Semi-true story, right? Uh, so let me ask you a question, though, real quick. Ser- seriously, though, serious question. Um, so Jack's mom told him in advance, if you touch the burner, you're going to get hot. Or not going to get hot. You're going to get burned. <laughs> uh, <laughs> humility, my friend, is not your strength. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so you're gonna, if you touch the burner, you're going to get burned, right? Okay. In that moment, let's say hypothetically that Jack agreed with his mom and said, okay. 
Does Jack, in that moment, does he really believe that if he touches the burner, it's going to hurt him? No? How do you know? Because he touched it, right? Okay. So I share that because in tonight's passage, Paul, what he's trying to do is he's trying to uh, show these Philippians that what they do reveals what they believe. Because belief is never separated from behavior. So you always live out of what you truly believe. For instance, in that that silly illustration, uh, Jack, in that moment, did not believe that the burner would hurt him. Instead, he believed that it would be more fun and interesting to touch it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And in a similar way, Paul, in this section here, in verse 27, he says, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on. So this is, this is what I want you guys to take away, that if you, if you don't hear anything else, just remember this as you're going throughout your week. Um, if you claim to believe the gospel, if you say, I am a Christian, if you claim to believe the gospel, then you must live a life worthy of the gospel. If you claim to believe the gospel, then you must live a life worthy of that gospel. There is no such thing as a Christian only in name, but not also in behavior. Because if your behavior doesn't reveal that you really believe, that that you really believe in the other-oriented love of God, and I'll explain that in a minute. If your behavior doesn't reveal that you believe that truth, that God, even within the Trinity, within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, their love is other-oriented. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son So even within himself, God's love is not self-focused, but rather is other-oriented. And not only that, but God's love spills over onto you guys. And it spills over onto his creation, regardless of whether you are uh, wicked or righteous. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that God sends the, the rain and the sun on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't punish sin for the wicked, but it does mean that even people who live their whole lives in rebellion against God, God gives them life, breath, family, shelter, all these good things. And instead of glorifying him, those people turn their back on God and just take his gifts. And they never thank God for the good things that he has given to them. We as Christians, however, we recognize all of the good things that God has given to us as a sign of his love. And so God, even in his very nature, is uh, is other-oriented in his love. He pours out his love rather than focusing inward. And if we really believe that that's what God is like, and that the, the primary example of that other-oriented life is that God gave up his one and only son 
to pay the penalty for your sins and then raise, uh, raised him up from the dead. And now Jesus is seated in, the, in heaven and he is uh, at this moment in the process of restoring all things. If we really believe all of that, you will not be the same person that you were when you first encountered Jesus. You cannot remain the same if you genuinely believe that. Evie agrees with me. (laughs) And so I share all of that because essentially what, what Paul is boiling down here to give you guys some context. So when Paul wrote this letter, he's in prison, okay? And so... In verse, uh, in ver- last week we went uh, from verse 12 to 26, and he kind of gives a little update on his, uh, shall we call it prison ministry, uh, because he's in prison, and uh, he's, he's not out there on a missionary journey anymore. Rather, he's in prison sharing Christ with all of the, the different guards that, that are around him. And in this, this section, just prior to what we're reading now, he's, he is not sure whether he's going to be released from prison or whether he's going to be executed for preaching Christ. If you look at verse, you know, right around 20, 21, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is faced with this stark reality. He's in prison for just sharing the gospel with people. And he has no idea whether he's going to be out of prison or whether he's going to be executed. And I said this last week, we know that later, uh, a few years later on, he was executed. He had his head cut off for preaching the gospel. Um, And I share that because Paul is essentially saying, he's saying, regardless of what happens to me, whether I am out of prison or whether I stay in prison and die here, Here's my expectation for you guys as the church that I have planted, okay? So it, it would be like Pastor Carl, if he were to be arrested for preaching the gospel, um, and, and if he were to write us a letter from prison, he would say, regardless of what happens to me and, and all of that, my hope for you guys is that you will continue to follow Jesus, that you will continue to preach the gospel, that you will continue to show love to one another and to seek out the lost, and so that is, what, uh, that is what Paul is doing here in this section. He's saying, if, I, if, I, if you never see me again, this is my hope for you guys. This is what I desire would be uh, the, the manner of your life. And so the question is, is if we must live a life worthy of the gospel, if that is a command, which it is in this passage, what does that look like? What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? In this passage, we're going to see three things. They'll be on the little handout that I gave you. I'm going to tell you in advance, and then we're going to walk through them uh, one at a time. But the first is standing firm, okay? So you're standing firm, okay? Second thing, what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel is to strive together for the faith of the gospel, striving together. Okay, so standing firm, striving together, and finally, suffering for Christ. So standing firm, striving together, and suffering for Christ. Three S's. Hope you guys remember it. Let's talk about this, this standing firm thing. What, is, what does Paul mean here? Well, let's, let's look at verse 27. So he says, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And so we just talked about how what Paul, uh, his desire is, is that whether he's released from prison or executed for preaching Christ, that these Christians, his desire is that they will stand firm in the gospel. The way that the the Greek is constructed here, you can think of the command to stand firm and to strive for both of them referring to the gospel. So stand firm for the gospel and and strive side by side for the gospel, okay? So stand firm for the gospel. In other words, Paul, what he wants more than anything for these people is if he dies or if he never sees them again, he wants them to keep following Jesus, He wants them to keep following Jesus. But what's interesting is he he uses this little phrase here. He says, stand firm in one spirit. Now, some of you may have the word spirit capitalized in your Bible, and some of you will not have it capitalized. So there's a uh, a little bit of a division on whether or not this is talking about Uh, the spirit of man, or whether this is talking about the Holy Spirit. I happen to be in the second camp. I think that this is talking about the Holy Spirit. And so what I think Paul is saying is he's saying this. He said, I want you guys to stand firm in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think about it this way. Some of you just watched my wife and my daughter uh, walk upstairs. I think I used this illustration this last week. Um, But Evie's only four months old right now, and so she can't really stand on her own. But if I hold her up, you know, she can kind of, you know, kind of stand on her tippy toes a little bit, and she can kind of stand. Now, if I were to let go, she would, you know, fall on her butt and, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to actually pick herself up. And in a similar way, you, as a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you cannot stand on your own. You cannot stand on your own. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. The only reason, if you are a Christian, if you are indeed trusting in Jesus, if you indeed have given your entire life to him, which is what it means to be a Christian, the only reason that you did that is because the Holy Spirit opened your heart and opened your eyes to see the gospel as true and beautiful and see Jesus as the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the only reason any of us believes the gospel. First Peter talks about how the Holy Spirit guards us for the day when Jesus comes again and keeps us believing. See, the reality is, is if, if I could mess up my own salvation, I would because I'm a sinner. But praise be to God that he doesn't leave us to our own resources. When you become a Christian, God fills you with his Holy Spirit. And at that moment, you can ask God at any, any time after you've become a Christian to help you. Because the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the same Holy Spirit who was there at creation, involved in the creation process, that Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus, is in you. And so my question for us is, is this. 
Are you regularly asking the Holy Spirit to help you? There was a time when I was working at Safeway, and uh, for, for those of you who are new, this is called Safeway Storytime. Um, uh, so uh, I was working at, at Safeway, and I had this coworker who, who was an atheist. And uh, this is, uh, right now, what I'm about to tell you is an example of what not to do. Uh, I have a lot of those. <laughs> um, and in this particular instance, I had a coworker who was an atheist, and so he would come in every night, and uh, so I worked the night shift, and so on top, I was cranky and tired on top of him uh, berating me for being a Christian. He would come in with these, it was almost like he would Google things to like try and disprove God. And so he would come in each night with a new reason why I was an idiot for following Jesus and how science had disproved the existence of God and, and all these different things. And I remember one night where uh, I had, he had just gotten on my very last nerve and I straight up just yelled at him. Straight up, just like yelled at him. I even said a bad word. So sorry. And um, I remember going home that the next morning and just collapsing on the floor and just crying because I felt like I had just ruined, uh, ruined my example, ruined my witness to this guy. And uh, um, I just cried out to the Lord. I said, God, you've got to change my heart. You've got to help me here because uh, I can't do it. And that's what we need to be doing every single day. You guys are going into schools. You guys are going um, you know, out into the world. You guys are going to go off to college. And if you think that you have what it takes to, uh, to do all of that without the help of the Holy Spirit, you're crazy. You absolutely desperately need the help of God if you desire to know, love, and follow Jesus. So my question is, are you regularly coming to God and saying, God, help me, strengthen me? Do you see your need for help? If you don't, God will soon bring a situation that will reveal your need, like he did for me on that fateful night in the safe way. And so... The first thing that, that Paul says is, is a, an element of living a life worthy of the gospel is that you stand firm in the gospel, strengthened by the Holy Spirit. But the next thing that you see is you see striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see that in the second half of verse 27. So after standing firm in the Holy Spirit, you see with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay? So Paul, he's describing this, this uh, in two ways. First, he uses a defense type of language, and then he uses offense type of language. For those of you who play soccer or sports, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of figure out what I'm saying here. The first, stand firm, is defensive. You can think of it as though, um, like, you know, you're doing karate or whatever. I don't do just martial arts, so if you do martial arts and I, you know, look like an idiot, I apologize, but not really. Um, you know, think of it like, uh, <laughs> think of it like karate, like someone's sight, like straight, you like, you know, block, right? Or like, what is it? Sand the fence or paint the fence or whatever wax it is, on. right? Wax on, wax off, whatever. Yeah, you know, you know what I'm talking about. 
And, uh, <laughs> and so, you, you know, defensive, you're blocking, right? Wax on, wax off. And uh, offensive is different, right? If you're on offense, you're playing soccer. You're trying to score a goal or whatever. Um, you know, I don't play soccer, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> but the, there's a difference between the two. So the striving together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is evangelism. And we can think of uh, standing firm like apologetics. Now, some, sometimes those two things uh, go hand in hand, right? So apologetics is, is really simply someone who's not a believer. They, they have a question, right? And you do your best to answer that question, whether that's like one of the big ones that people ask is how can you believe in a good God and an all-powerful God and there be the existence of evil in this particular world? That's a big one that people, that's a question that people genuinely have. And so we as Christians, if you follow Jesus, would do our due diligence to try and answer that question. That would be what it, part of standing firm in the gospel. But then the offensive element is striving together to share the gospel with people, to share Jesus with people. And the interesting thing is, is it says here that in verse 28, that that when you do that, you should do it unafraid because when you uh, boldly proclaim the gospel, and then you experience persecution for preaching that gospel, two things are revealed. The first thing that's revealed is the very fact that you are suffering for Christ, which we're about to talk about that, reveals that you are trying to live a life faithful to Jesus. The very fact that you are sharing the gospel with people and then experiencing uh, suffering or persecution for that reveals that you're actually being faithful. That you're actually living faithfully for Jesus. But it also reveals another thing. That those who are opposed to the gospel have not been saved by God. You know, or another way, another way how Paul says it here, those who are, who are opponents to the gospel and opponents to you in preaching the gospel, what is revealed is that they are on a path headed to destruction. They are on a path headed to hell. And so, what Paul is trying to say here is that there is a, a defensive element of standing firm And uh, there is an offensive element that is where you partner up with people and you share the gospel. If you think about about it this way, if you've ever seen uh, or participated in a three-legged race, uh, those are sometimes difficult, especially if you and the other person are not on the same page, right? Uh, You know, you're kind of, you know all over the place, and if you're not on the same page, you have to communicate, right, if you're going to strive forward. And in a similar way, what needs to happen for us as Christians is we need to communicate, partner up, and strive forward in sharing Jesus with people. You see, there's a, there's a misconception that has happened, I believe, in the modern church, and it's this idea of, of personal evangelism, 
This idea of it's like you going out by yourself. It's you against the world. And that's just not how you see evangelism done in the scriptures. When you see Jesus sending out the disciples, how many was it? It was two by two, right? When you see Paul going out on his missionary journeys, it was Paul and Barnabas. And then when they parted ways, it was Paul and Silas and Paul and Timothy. You see, I don't know if you guys have ever wrestled with this, but it's like, you know what? We're not supposed to be doing evangelism by ourselves. We're supposed to be doing it with with each other. It's a group activity. It's the difference between golf and soccer, right? Golf, you play by yourself, and that's a, you know, a one-man sport, whereas soccer is a team effort. And so what Paul is doing here is he is he's saying, my dear Philippians, what I want you guys to do is I want you guys to come together in unity and share Jesus with people. That is essentially what he's saying here. And so my question for you, as you are thinking about this call to strive together for the faith of the gospel, what Christian friends in your life can you partner up with in school or outside of school and share Jesus with people? What friends, I want you to think about that tonight and even right now in this moment. I mean, there are people in this room, a good chunk of you go to the same school. It is far easier to do evangelism when you have a partner, when you have someone who's got your back, who uh, is with you when you are trying to share the gospel with somebody. I, I can recall a specific instance that just happened maybe a couple months before my wife and I moved here where I had a, a coworker who was a pretty, pretty strong atheist. And uh, me and, uh, it's actually funny because they're, they're brothers. One's an atheist, one's a very strong believer. Um, and so it was kind of an interesting conversation. And it, went, it was just a whole different experience <coughs> having a conversation when it was the three of us versus uh, just you know a one-on-one kind of thing. Because you might, in that moment, if you've ever tried to share the gospel, you're, a lot of times your brain will go blank. I don't know if you, have you experienced this before where you're like... Jesus, that, yep, yep, Jesus is God, yeah, and, and so you're, it's, it, a lot of times you're in that moment, it's like, it's hard, it's hard to think, right, and so when you have someone else who is like-minded, who desires to share the love of Jesus just as much as you do, it, it kind of gives you some, some confidence, and that's the way that God designed it. He designed us to be there for one another and he designed it for uh, the church to go and impact the world as a group for Christ. Okay, so question for you tonight when you're sitting on your bed, who can I partner up with and share Jesus? Who, who, who can be my, my, uh, the Barnabas to, to me being Paul, Right? Okay, so uh, standing firm, striving together, side by side, okay? But lastly, is suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ. Look at verse 29. 
Look at verse 29 there. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul here, once again, the last, the last thing that he says that is a, a part of living a life worthy of the gospel is that you would be willing to suffer for Christ. You would be willing to suffer in the process of sharing the gospel. Paul is a good example of that. Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter because he was sharing the gospel. And he says, essentially, I want you to follow my example. I want you to be willing to experience suffering for the sake of sharing the gospel. And what's really interesting, actually, is the, word, the Greek word there in verse 29, where it says, for it has been granted to you, could actually be translated as the word gift. So imagine God has handed you a hand-wrapped hand a present, and it's got a nice little bow on it, and you, you take it, and you open it, and inside there's some suffering. And inside there's some suffering, and it's a gift. It's a gift for you. And, and here's, here's why it's a gift. Here's why it's a gift. Because when you are made fun of for being a Christian, when, you, uh, when people look down on you for following Jesus, that is a sign, like I said previously, that you are trying to actually follow Jesus. When you are made fun of, when people don't like you, when people uh, cast you off for following Jesus and for sharing the gospel, that is a sign that you really believe the gospel because you're willing to talk about it and you're willing to experience suffering because you desire so much so that people would come to know Jesus. It reveals just how precious Jesus is in your life, that you are willing to experience suffering. Martin Luther is a great example of this. It's October, so we can talk about it. Um, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest, monk, whatever you want to call it. And uh, he was reading the scriptures and he came to realize that the gospel that he was preaching was not really the correct gospel. And he came to realize that there were several things that the Roman Catholic Church were teaching that weren't in the Bible. And so he wrote the 95 theses and nailed it to the door at, at, at Wittenberg. And, and that just was kind of this, this catalyst that sparked all of these different events that culminated at him being called before this, this council. They called it a diet. Don't know why. Um, probably should have Googled it more, but, you know, I didn't. Um, the Diet of Worms, or Worms is what it was called. And it was, that's a, it was a city. Um, and so basically, I'm going to give you the modern version of, of what happened. Essentially, all of the, the religious elites, they, they call him before the, this, this tribunal, if you will. And uh, they say, okay, Martin, are you going to take back all these things that you've said? Are you going to, are you going to take it back? And now what was being threatened at the time was death. This is during the time when they are burning people at the stake for preaching something different than the Roman Catholic Church. So Martin Luther, threatened with death, is a little bit scared, right? And so he's like, can I have the night to think about it? And so he, has, he takes the night, and then he comes back the next day, and they're like, all right, Martin, what's up? 
Are you going to take it back or not? And Martin Luther says this. He says, it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience and sacred scripture. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. He was willing to experience suffering so that the true Jesus and the true gospel could be proclaimed. Another example uh, is Thomas Cranmer, okay? Similar, similar time period. Uh, his story is a little bit different, um, but it's just so awesome. Um, so basically, same thing, comes to realize that, Rome's not, that the Roman Catholic Church is not preaching the true gospel. So he changes his position and starts teaching the, the Bible as it really is. And the queen at the time was a Roman Catholic. And so she hears about this and basically says, either you take back the things that you said or we're going to burn you at the stake. And so Thomas Cranmer is scared of that, right? And so he, he writes a letter saying, okay, I take it all back. Then he crumples it up, throws it away. He writes another letter. Okay, I take it back. Crumples it up, throws it away. This happens four times. And then the fifth time, he actually sent the letter. Okay, so he actually sends it says, I take it all back. And then the queen gets it, reads it, and says, nah, I don't believe you. Arrest him. We're going to kill him anyways. So he, <laughs> they arrest him. He's on, the, he's on the pyre, as it were. They're getting ready to light it. And they're like, basically like, any last words? And he says, you know what the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to take this hand that wrote that letter, and I'm going to shove it in the fire and burn it off. Because I didn't mean a word of what I said in that letter. And that's exactly what he did. The first thing he did, as soon as they lit it, he shoved his hand into the fire and he burned it until it was a little stump. He truly believed the gospel and he was willing to die for it. Yeah? Yeah. Why yep. I'll explain after in group. Um, so I share those stories because these are stories of, of people who so believed the gospel, so believed in Jesus, that Jesus is the only way to God, that they were willing to die for it. They, they were willing to experience suffering for that, for that faith, for that belief, because that is how much they valued Christ and how much they valued people coming to know the God who loves them, made them, who sent his son to die for them, to pay the penalty for their sins and to bring them into a relationship with himself. So my question for you, as you're thinking about this, this calling, is it your expectation to suffer for Christ? Or did you think that when you started following Jesus that it would be all sunshine and rainbows? Did you think that life would be easy? Because when Jesus called the disciples, you know what he said? He said, take up your cross and follow me. I can't remember if it was D.L. Moody or if it was someone else, but they said in the Christian life, you have two things. I just said this to Joel on Friday. You have two things. You have the cross and the crown. A lot of us want to reach for the crown first. We want the glory. We want, to put, we want, to, want the glory, the, the, the joy, the, the pleasures forevermore, as Psalm 16 says. But there's an order. You take the cross before you take the crown. 
you take up your cross and follow the suffering Savior in this life now. And when you reach eternity, when you close your eyes in death and you open them to see Jesus face to face, it's pleasures forevermore. It's joy everlasting. The worst it gets is maybe 80 years of suffering here, maybe 80 years of being made fun of or of experiencing suffering for sharing the gospel, and then it's infinite ages of joy in the presence of God. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that I consider the present sufferings of this life not worthy to be compared with the glory that is yet to come. So is it your expectation to suffer for Christ? Paul says in a letter to young Timmy uh, as, he's, uh, as, as he's getting ready to, to be executed for the faith, he says, Tim, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that's just the reality because right now in this world, you've got the kingdom of darkness and you've got the kingdom of Christ And these two kingdoms are at war with one another. And if you are a Christian, you have been transplanted out of the kingdom of darkness and grafted into the kingdom of Christ, into the family of God. And as a result of that, the world will hate you. People who do not love Jesus will not love you. Jesus says that if the world hates you, Don't be surprised. They hated me first. So is it our expectation to suffer for following Jesus? And so, as we said at the beginning with the illustration of of Jack, behavior cannot be separated from what you genuinely believe. Paul genuinely believed that Jesus is the only way to God that he was the only uh, rescue from the penalty that our sins deserve. And the result of of that belief, how he responded, was that he told people about Jesus, everybody he could find. He told them about Christ. And so, if we genuinely believe, really believe the gospel, then it will change the way that we live. We will live a life worthy of that gospel. And yet, the sad reality, and I'll just wrap up here, the sad reality is that many of us do not live a life worthy of the gospel. All of us live unworthy of the gospel. And that's why Jesus came. He came to forgive our sins. He came to forgive those moments when we are so afraid of what other people will think of us that we don't share Christ. He came to forgive those moments when we uh, don't uh, share the gospel, when we, uh, when we allow fear to motivate us more than a love for Jesus. You see, Jesus is the perfect example. Jesus stood firm in every temptation because he knew that you and I that we would not stand firm. There would be moments where we would fall, where we would be weak. Jesus strived 
together with the Father and the Holy Spirit to bring forgiveness of sins to all of God's people. And Jesus suffered for our sins in our place so that he might bring us to God, so that he might restore our relationship to God. And he did these things for you, Joel. He did these things for you and Bear. Because he desires that the love that he has shown to you, that it would motivate you to show that love to other people. Let's pray.